This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Ian McDonald from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to the Jodcast, Ian. Hello. Yeah, we've had you on for Ask an Astronomer, but somehow we've never interviewed you, which I don't know how that's been overlooked. So I basically got you in today because I um, heard you do a lot of research on dying stars, but you've also had like an outside interest in genealogy, I think. And also you've done some stuff on transiting exoplanets and you're kind of moving into that area. So it sounds like you've got a whole range of cool things to talk about. Yes, that's right. I try and be a bit of a jack of all trades, um, which probably means I'm a master of none, but uh, I'll do my best. It keeps me off the streets. Yeah. So if we start with kind of what I gather is the main thing you've worked on, which is dying stars, could you tell me a little bit more about what you do and why, you care, why you're interested in it? Okay, so the thing about dying stars is that we need to understand how we go from the Big Bang, where we have only hydrogen and helium, to something like what we have today, where we've got oxygen to breathe and nitrogen in the air and carbon in our bodies, and all these kind of different elements that we have. And all those elements get made in the stars, but in order to get out of the stars, the stars have to die and release their atmospheres back into space. That's the process that I've been looking at. If you look at something like your body, that's something like 90% of it has been made in the star. And if you look at something like the Earth, it's more than 99% of it has been made in the star. So we have to understand where these elements come from in order to understand things like, is the Earth typical? And what happens in other planets and other solar systems throughout the universe's history? Yeah, so I guess as well as actually studying um, how stars die for the sake of that's quite interesting in itself, it also informs things like um, people who study uh, solar system formation and planet formation, but and also people who are looking for life. Yeah, so it gives us answers to a lot of questions um, from how do stars die, by which mechanisms is the universe chemically enriched, um, but it also tells us lots of things about things like how habitable is the universe, is there a chance of life elsewhere, mm-hmm. and how did we came, come into being? Oh, okay. And what um, is there a particular kind of like type of star that you tend to study as it dies? or? So I tend to look at the stars like the sun, um, or stars a few times the mass of the sun. Basically anything that's not going to go supernova, things that become a planetary nebula instead, mm-hmm. or even stars lower mass than that. I tend to look at the, the oldest stars in the universe, uh, which are more representative of the ones that have come before us more representative of the things that the solar system was made out of. Mm-hmm. I look at how they die. It's mainly red giant stars, no asymptotic giant branch stars. And we look at the dust production that happens in their circumstellar envelopes. So we get dust condensing around the star. And we also uh, look at gas coming off the stars as well. And what do you mean by dust? Well, we see, depending on the kind of star, we see two kinds of dust. We see Silicate dust, which is basically sand, Mm -hmm. and we see off carbon stars, we see carbonaceous dust, which is a bit like soot. Mm -hmm. And these sandy and sooty kind of dust mix together and form the dust belts that you see in the Milky Way and other galaxies. And how, I don't know how big a question this is, how is that kind of dust produced? Because I always think of stars as this like really hot, intense environment. And so something like dust seems really far away from that. So if you get a red giant star, it cools down to about 4,000 degrees or maybe even a little less than that. And what happens is that the star's pulsating and that pulsation lifts material off the stellar surface. And there's an environment around the star, the circumstellar environment, where pressures and temperatures are just right so that the atoms that are coming off the star can stick together um, to form molecules and then to larger molecules and then to small dust grains. 
So how do you study these dying stars? Like what do you, what do you actually do day to day? Well, know? most of my day is spent swearing at a computer, probably like <laughs> most other astrophysicists. But um, we use a lot of different telescopes and a lot of different methods to look at this process because it's very complicated. There's a lot of things going on, which is why we don't understand it yet. Mm-hmm. We mainly look at things like um, the spectral energy distributions of the stars, so mm-hmm. how much light comes off at different wavelengths. We look at, um, particularly in the infrared, because you can see dust features from specific kinds of dust. For example, the sandy silicate dust produces a big feature at 10 microns. So we see a lot of excess flux there. We also look at atomic spectra of stars. We see uh, which molecules are being produced. Um, things like titanium oxide, which is used in sunscreen, also acts as a, it's a bit of a sunscreen for stars. It, it cools the, um, the stars and makes them red. We also look at in the submillimeter. We've used the ALMA telescopes, for instance, uh, to look at carbon monoxide coming off these stars. It's very dangerous to humans, but it's also the most common molecule in the universe. Oh, wow. I never knew that at all. Well, yeah. apart from hydrogen. Well, well, yeah. It's, yeah, I get what you mean. <laughs> um, and so if you, you know, through observations, you can look at the amount of carbon monoxide around a star in that, that kind of environment. What does that tell you? Well, it tells us how much mass is coming off the star. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also tell what velocity it's moving at from how wide the line is. We can also say something about what's going on in the dynamics of the atmosphere, about how the um, material is coming off the surface, what forces are driving it, and how it's getting from the star uh, out of the deep gravitational well that the star has and into the interstellar medium. Ah, okay. And because I think a lot of the time when we talk about our research, we're talking fairly general terms, but what we do every day is like the real minutiae of the topic. So what for you, if this question is appropriate, <laughs> are the kind of the big questions that you have about how these stars die and the things that you really want to understand? Well, what we don't know is how stars lose mass. Mm-hmm. We don't really fundamentally understand how that works. We think what happens is these stellar pulsations lift material off the surface, and then the light from the star actually hits these dust grains and forces them away from the star, and that's how stars lose mass. But exactly how stars lose mass probably depends on the kind of star you're looking at. If you're talking about a hot star, or if you're talking about a cold star, or if you're talking about a massive star or a less massive star, if you're talking about a star with lots of dust and lots of metals, or if you have a star with very few metals. So what I'm trying to do is understand how stars of different kinds lose mass. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this way, what we can do is we can say, okay, if I've got a star of this mass and this metallicity and this temperature and this radius, this magnetic field, uh, what rate is it losing mass? And we can give that information to people who model the evolution of stars. And they can use that to work out um, how stars live and how stars die and reproduce what we see in the universe at large. Mm-hmm. And that's very cool as well, because I can imagine that informing things like galaxy formation models as well, because the winds and stuff you get from stars affects the morphology of the galaxy in some way, I think. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of impact this has in different fields. Mm-hmm. Um, if you change the mass loss from a star, you change everything about the kinetic feedback it has to the galaxy, so how well stars um, and galaxies are able to retain dust, how well clusters can form, um, how lo- long a period over which clusters can form. You can change everything from the radioisotope decay that then goes into your planets and mm-hmm. dictates how... Uh, plate tectonics works 
you can change the composition of the stars that are forming in the next generation. You can make carbon stars. You might be able to make carbon planets. Carbon planets? You, you can make planets made out of diamond. Wow. If you get the conditions just right. Mm, that's pretty amazing. So it, it changes a lot of what we know about the universe. Mm -hmm. No, that's incredible. I... I'll admit, I genuinely never realised <laughs> how important stars were. <laughs> and I say that as a slightly embarrassed cosmologist. And not just twinkly things. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think often cosmologists are a little bit dismissive and unfairly so. <laughs> Definitely. So I know you've also done some kind of work on the side looking at transiting planets and things. How did you get into that? Well, I got into it through a bit of a stroke of luck, like mm -hmm. all the best decisions. I was doing a PhD at Keele University at just the same time as the SuperWASP project was starting up, and it was finding the first few dozen planets outside the solar system. Ah. But they had a lot more candidate planets than they knew what to do with. They didn't know which ones of those were real. Um, so I spent my nights um, going up to the university observatory and taking light curves of these potential planets. Most of them turned out not to be planets, but um, a lot of them did turn out to be planets. And uh, I helped discover about six planets um, during my PhD because of that process. That's amazing, genuinely. And because, you know, the field of extraterrestrial planets, I feel like it's gone from, you know, something that seemed fairly theoretical almost to something that's just exploded. Um, I know when I was in school, it was more like looking at tens or hundreds of planets. And now it's they're finding loads every day. And you were a part. Of that as well. Yeah. yeah, it's just a case of being in the right place at the right time and knowing what to do. I know, but it's still a contribution. Mm. <laughs> um, and now you're looking at moving to that field a little bit more, is that right? Yeah, so I've changed tax slide with my research. I'm now looking at extrasolar planets um, for my day job. And that's spending my time looking partly for free-floating planets, which are planets not attached to a star, and partly looking at the characteristics of the planets that we already know about going around stars. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess that involves a lot of going back to the literature if you're changing fields as well. That's got to be quite a... So you said um, free-floating planets. I never knew that was a thing. How does that happen? Nor did anyone else until fairly recently. We okay. don't know exactly how they happen. We don't mm -hmm. know how many of them there are. That's part of what I'm going to find out. Mm. But there's two main mechanisms by which you can form free-floating planets. Mm -hmm. Firstly, you form them out in space. You just have a planet condensing out of gas and dust in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Or secondly, you have several planets going around the star, and one of them gets kicked out by gravitational interaction with the others. They must be are they harder to detect as well, because I guess you know a lot of the transit-type methods you wouldn't necessarily be able to use unless you were just very lucky. Or No, yeah. so the... The main reason that we can't see these free-floating planets, mm. and the reason that we don't know about them very much, is because we don't have any method of actually finding them directly. Mm -hmm. They're too cold to emit in normal wavelengths of light. We have to go really far into the infrared, and we can't see that from the ground. Mm -hmm. So we really struggle to actually detect them directly. But what we can do is we can wait for them to occult a different star, so if they pass between us and a background star, what happens is that that passage isn't usually directly over the star. It's mm -hmm. often slightly offset. But that's sometimes enough for um, gravitational microlensing to take effect. So what we do is we wait for this planet, free-floating planet, to pass in front of the star, and we observe a little bit of magnification as the source crosses what's known as the Einstein ring. So that's the, the region which Albert Einstein predicted that we should get gravitational focusing of light. 
So for that kind of thing, do you already have to think there might be a transiting planet there? Or is it more a case of observing lots and lots of stars and hoping you'll find something? Like, how do you even go about that? So we don't uh, know anything's there mm. um, because we haven't, haven't been able to see it. But obviously, this only happens once. Mm -hmm. So we don't know where to predict it either. Yeah. The only real chance we've got is to actually look at a large number of stars for mm -hmm. a long time and wait and hope we see something. So that's what these surveys do where we go out and we look at places like the Galactic Bulge where there's millions of stars in a single image and you just watch them and wait for something to happen. Yeah, no, I can imagine that's got to be really difficult because even, you know, even if you do manage to catch one, it only happens once. <laughs> so you can't check your, no one can confirm your results necessarily in the same way, which has got to be tricky. Yeah, so that's what, we, um, what happens is that we find something that's interesting. We say to everyone, hey, this is interesting, go and look mm -hmm. at it. And over the few days it takes for a typical stellar microlensing event to take place, we watch it very carefully and we wait and see if there's any extra blips in there that might be planets. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. And I guess it requires a lot of um, like fast follow-up type things as well. Right? Yeah, so it involves mm -hmm. a lot of um, going to robotic observatories mm -hmm. or pinching time on small observatories that uh, are not sitting useless, but uh, sitting waiting for projects like this mm -hmm. to happen. Mm, that's very cool. So briefly going back to what your main focus has been up until this point, um, which I guess hopefully you'll still be able to do some of, what are the things that you're looking forward to in that field? Like whether it's, you know, new observatories or kind of new areas of discovery or anything? So the thing we're looking forward to in both the exoplanet world and the evolved star world is the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is a big telescope is going to go into space and that allows us to look at infrared wavelengths that we can't see from the ground. That's useful for AGB stars because we can now look at the dust around the AGB stars again, whereas previously we've only had the Spitzer telescope which has stopped working. And in the exoplanet community we can actually look at some of the molecular features in the atmospheres of these um, transiting exoplanets, these very hot Jupiters that we've helped find. Oh, so I didn't actually realise that you know, there'd been this period in the evolved star community where you didn't have an infrared observatory that you could use. How has that affected research in that community? Well, a lot of people have had to go and look at different things and people have mm. had to look at archival data. So we've, there's been a lot of going back to old observations and seeing what else we can extract from them that we haven't been able to do previously because we haven't had the time. But now we're looking at ramping up things both from the ground. We've got new ground-based observatories and instruments that can look in the infrared, but there's still wavelengths that we can only look at from space. So the main focus now is to look at how we can best prepare for the, the new observations that the James mm. Webb Space Telescope is going to do. Yeah, that's very cool. And I, I mean, I guess there are some good things about having that time to go back through archival data as well. Because I, I mean, I can't remember that statistic, but there is a horrifying statistic about the amount of astronomy data that's created and never used. So I guess hopefully this means more of it is used. But yeah, It certainly is. Yeah. We've had several uh, publications recently where we've gone back and picked out every single star in the Magellanic Clouds. Oh, wow. It's been observed with Spitzer IRS, and we've published a point source classification catalogue on all of them. Mm -hmm. And there are hundreds of stars um, mm. in these fields, and there's been a major international effort to actually coordinate the observations together. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I guess this kind of brings me on to the other bit of research you do in your free time, which I am completely fascinated by. How did, well, what, what kind of things are you interested in, and how did you even start doing that? 
Well, one of the great things about being an astrophysicist is you've got a lot of transferable skills that um, a lot of people don't um, necessarily have in the wider scientific community, never mind the general public. And you get uh, trained up on a number of things, one of which is statistics, which is really useful. So what I've done on the side is I'm actually a um, honorary fellow at the University of Strathclyde in genealogy, paleography and heraldry. None of which I know anything about, but um, they've hired me for my experience with the genetic project. And in these genetic projects, people go and take a DNA test and they find out that they're descended from this particular branch, whichever one it may be, of the human family tree. You can get tests at the male line, you can get tests at the female line, and you can get general tests. What I've been looking at is the male line tests. What we can do with those tests is we can work out how the peopling of Europe has progressed from... You know, tens of thousands of years ago, when we've got the first people coming into Europe, right up to the modern day um, and historical migrations um, like the Romans or the Vikings or Normans or the Anglo-Saxons, all these kinds of people. And what I've been able to do is use the statistical techniques that I've learned in astronomy to help go back and work out when these kind of migrations happened and where the people who were participating in them came from. Wow. And what, what kind of things have you found out? Well, we've found out quite a lot of things, partly through collaboration with the archaeological DNA community, um, who've gone to ancient burial sites and actually performed the same kind of tests on the bodies that they found there. Mm-hmm. We can find that certain populations of the British Isles or elsewhere descended from certain other populations. We found, quite surprisingly, that about 5,000 years ago, uh, there was a massive invasion of people from the West Eurasian steppe into Western Europe via the Corded Ware culture. We found that descendants of those cultures now occupy about 40% of the male lines of Europe. Wow. So when you say the uh, West Eurasian steppe, whereabouts is that? So that's modern Ukraine, uh, the Western part of Russia, and wow. those sorts of areas. So their genes are in, they account for 40, their genes are in 40% of the population? Is that what you meant? Or... Yeah, so, so everyone has these genes. Mm-hmm. Um, and 40% of the direct male lines that we see okay. are descended from this one individual that lived 5,000 years ago, came over from West Eurasia into probably somewhere near modern Germany. That's incredible. Wow. I guess, I mean, when you think about the maths, then that kind of thing does happen. But it's when you just say it out loud, it's, it does sound amazing. Yeah. yeah. So we found a, a lot of interesting different mm-hmm. things. Uh, found a distant cousin of mine was buried in York in the 3rd century AD. He's a Roman gladiator. Wow. I've found that I'm the 150th cousin to the Queen. That is closer than I would have expected. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's only about 1% of the population that can say mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And we've found a variety of other people throughout Europe who've got similar stories. Mm-hmm. We've found that some people descend from Norman knights. We've found people who descend from uh, prehistoric peoples in Scotland from 10,000 years ago. We've found a lot of interesting family stories for individuals as well. So we've been mm-hmm. able to link them back to different peoples on the European continent. And we've found lots of things that aren't true as well. Like we've found that people's ancestries aren't what they thought they were. We've found things uh, like adoption cases where we've managed to track down the biological parents. Wow. And the reason I got into genetic testing in the first place was to dis- discover whether I'm a McDonald descended from the Lords of the Isles. Turns out I'm not, but uh, that's uh, another story in itself. Oh, wow. No, that's incredible. And, that, you know, 
from what you said there, you can really see the human aspect to all of that research. Because even though you're using the same skills as what you use in astronomy, you know, finding out about adoption cases that people weren't aware about is, you know, a very human story. Yeah, so it's um, it's putting human context on the whole of history. It's rather than looking at pots and what shape they are. Yeah. We're looking at real migrations of people and how individuals have lived and died. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's incredible and absolutely fascinating to hear how an astronomer, how you've been a part of that, because that's, you know, people often say, oh, you've got all these transferable skills, but you don't, it's so rare that you actually see it used in practice like that in such a fascinating way. So given that you do so many different topics of research, you know, some in your free time, some as your job, you know, what is the thing for you that brings it all together that makes you do all of those things? I think the best way to describe that is how we came to be, who we are, and where we are today. It's a big story that goes right the way back to the Big Bang, but it goes all the way through the stars that have lived and died and produced the chemical elements in our bodies, to how planets and the solar systems form and evolve, to whether there's life out there in the universe and how we came into being as a species, all the way up to the present day when we're looking at how we as individuals came to be through the migrations and the evolution of our ancestors. So it's really a big story from you know, the most fundamental principles of the universe right up to the personal details of the modern day. Fantastic. And thank you for sharing it with the Jodcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great to have you. Thanks very much.